from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. A Baha'i Perspective is a radio program of biographical interviews of people who have either chosen the Baha'i faith as a way of life or who have a relationship with the Baha'i faith. Today, I'm playing a telephone interview with Jane Jensen. My interview with Jane is a sequel to my interview with Paul Jensen. Jane's sister became a Baha'i first. At first, Jane gave no thought to her sister's belief as she passed and ignored the Baha'i House of Worship in Wilmette, Illinois, just about every day. Once her sister got married, her brother-in-law gave her a book called Thief in the Night. It was that book that got her to consider the Baha'i faith more seriously. Her life totally took a different turn after becoming a Baha'i. I started the interview by asking Jane where she grew up, and what was it like growing up there. Well, I grew up in a small town in Illinois called Rushville. There were, it was 2,700 people. It was a very nice town because they had a, a swimming pool and a golf course. And so what were your interests growing up? My interest was art. I always loved art. I took art all the way through school. Well, I was in drama. I, whatever that school offered, I was involved in. I was a singer, did love singing. And I used that in later years of my life. And because of all my art, I became an art teacher later on. And then I became a fine artist as I grew up in in Panama. I started painting scenes. But in my little town, I was very good in art from the time I was six years old. I remember when when I was six years old, I made myself a clown suit out of what's that kind of material that stretches. That was my first memory of what I did as a little kid. I sat myself down on the floor. I drew around myself, and and I sewed it together and, uh, you know, made a clown suit with a little hat and the whole work. Then everybody, I suppose, who knew me realized, well, that kid's got some artistic talent. <laughs> <laughs> and, and all through school, I took art, so I ended up majoring in art. And and I was always very adventurous. There was a boy next door who moved in when we were nine years old. We both were nine, and he came to town with his family. They lived right next door. And he and I, we had horses together, and we did a lot of adventurous things. I I was a tomboy. I played football with Gary, my next-door neighbor, and his buddies that came over. And they all chose me (laughs) to be on their team. You know, I was... Very varied, a lot of different things. Well, what was religious life like growing up? My parents were members of the Presbyterian Church. As long as I can remember, I went to Sunday school every Sunday, and I would get the prize for being there every time. We had a good religious background, but I, I think it was more just a thing to do because I, we never really prayed at home unless it was Thanksgiving then we would all say a prayer. Mm-hmm. But we we weren't a spiritual family, I don't believe. But when I got into high school, I went out to Colorado to a Young Life camp. 
and and that uh, I think that was all different religions, and that was a very good experience. What were the circumstances that had you go to that camp? Well, the boy next door, I don't know. He 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 went one one year to to be a camper, and then the next year he went back to be a you know a helper, so to speak. And I went with him that time. Mm-hmm. And then the the next year, another one of our friends went. So there were three of us that went. And every time I came back from that place, I was just really really inspired, and I'd get my Bible out and I would study my Bible and. And my family thought I was strange <laughs> because I really had gotten the religious feeling, you know. But then that all passed, and then I went on to college. Although I did, I, I went to uh, the church, the Presbyterian Church at Knox College, did that, and I sang in the choir. And when we finally did become Baha'is, I found out that my, my father had passed away by that time. But my mother, she just wasn't sure she believed in God. And, you know, that just kind of broke my heart thinking about mm. that because we had, you know, we went to church all those years. And so I guess it was more of a social thing for her. Yeah, I think yeah. it was. And, I mean, my, my mother was a choir director for many, many years. And I always went to, uh, to the choir practice because I could sing. My mother was a very good singer. And, you know, we did all those things, and then we would have, you know, at church they'd have big social affairs and big dinners, and so that was the atmosphere that I grew up in. What did you study in college? Well, I studied education, elementary education, and art. I got two degrees. And, you know, I didn't know what I wanted to do. And my mother, she was kind of a, a, a dynamic lady, knowing me and my art, she said, Jane, you would make a wonderful art teacher. And I couldn't picture myself as a teacher because I didn't think I had enough sense. I guess. <laughs> she kept saying that, and, and I, I loved art, so I went ahead and my counselor at school said, you need to get the elementary education degree and the art, and then you could be an art teacher. Mm. So that's what I did. and I'm glad I did that because I ended up teaching for 10 years before. So, I, I was a, a, a first-grade teacher out in Littleton, Colorado. That was my first job. So what was and it like on the first day of teaching for you? The first day? Yeah. Sort of scary. Yeah. <laughs> I had 36 little first-graders, and that's too many for any class. But they were on the split session out there in Littleton. The, they, the town was growing so fast, I guess. So my my little children... I had them first in the morning, and then another group of children would come at noon and be in the afternoon class with another teacher. So I would stay on two hours and help her get started with her class, and she would come two hours at the end of my class. So we sort of overlapped. But my children were much, six months is a big difference in little six-year-olds. And so my kids were six years six uh, months younger than the ones who came in the afternoon. And so I just about went crazy because I didn't really, my discipline, I didn't know how to discipline at that time very well. And so I had a lot of problems with discipline. And the other teacher had been there many years, 
and she had no problems whatsoever. Her class was just, and we both had 36 children. <laughs> it wasn't a very good experience. So the next year I came home, got a job teaching art and phys ed in my hometown. And they let me teach phys ed because I had had one year of phys ed training. So that was enough to get me started doing the phys ed. And then, of course, I majored in art. So that was a good year. And how long did you do that for? Well, I did that for a year. And then one of my very good friends that I grew up with, she was a year behind me. So she finished her school, and she wanted to go up in uh, Winnetka, Illinois. And so she and I thought it would be fun to live together and teach. And I had gotten a job in Wilmette teaching art, and she was doing, I think, junior high in, in Winnetka. So we lived together that year. Then I got married. So how long were you in Illinois teaching? Well, I was in Illinois that one year when I went home, and then the next year in uh, Wilmette. Then I moved, when I got married, we moved to Galesburg. That was my college town. Mm-hmm. And I got a job teaching a second grade. You, when you were in Wilmette, did you realize that the Baha'i House of Worship was there in Wilmette? Well, I passed it just about every day. I did. I passed it every day on the way to work. But I thought it was a lovely building. But that's all I knew about it. I had no idea what it was. It was just a beautiful building. I even made a painting of it. It was a beautiful building on Lake Michigan. And What were the circumstances that you met your husband? Well, between my junior and senior year at college, I got the opportunity to go to Europe. And uh, I was a photographer, too. I forgot to mention that. I got into taking baby pictures. And my older sister was, she was three years older, and she was, getting married and her all her friends were getting married and having babies and I started taking pictures I made a lot of money doing that because of that I saved my money and I was able to pay my way to go to Europe on a ship this was back in 1956 so I went to Europe and I I had lots of adventures during my trips all the countries I went to and then on my way home I got back on that ship and this group of Scandinavian guys were on the ship, and one of them was, was my husband. We met, and we had nine wonderful days getting to know each other, and we just fell in love. The atmosphere was right, dancing and moonlight and all that stuff. When, when we parted in August of 56, and I went back to school, and he went on to Canada, we rode back and forth, and called on the phone a few times and I just felt like he was he was the one he was the one my mother always told me that but it's funny (laughs) when I met this Dane and you know he didn't have the education but he was a very smart man he seemed very smart but my folks they hadn't met him so they said what on what are you thinking of Jane (laughs) you know and and I was just madly in love and then he came at Christmas time, and they got to know him, and and they thought he was really nice. So, but I mean, it didn't happen until four years later. We saw each other once every six months for for three and a half years, till we could uh, find a time that it was convenient for both of us, and then we finally got married. That was in 1960. 
June of 1960. That was back in your hometown you got married? Yeah. And then we, we moved right to Galesburg, where I had that uh, second grade little class of children. That was a very nice experience. How's that? Well, there was only 19 children in the class, as opposed to 36. And with 19 children, it was a small little room in the basement of the school. I guess they didn't have any more room for any more children. But it was a very sweet little class, and I, I really enjoyed the experience. But then, at the end of that year, Paul decided there wasn't much opportunity for him in Galesburg, and so he moved up to Chicago about six weeks before my school ended. So I stayed behind and finished the year and then uh, moved all my stuff up to Chicago, and he found a place to live. And so uh, we lived in Evanston, and I got myself a job teaching school. So when school started, my job was um, teaching phys ed. Because I'd had that year of teaching part-time phys ed and part-time art in my hometown, they needed a teacher in the Wilmette school system, and uh, so they hired me to teach clean phys ed. So that was fun because I, I was always sporty-minded, and I was learning as I went along because it was a full-time job, but I went around to different schools. Then I got pregnant. And uh, I taught another school up until my baby was ready to be born, teaching phys ed also. And I tell you, when you're pregnant, you know, like eight months pregnant, and <laughs> I was running, I, I had the kids in the gym, you know, and I had them run laps around the gym, and I ran with them. Oh, my gosh. And, um, you know, that was really, really good. <laughs> that was good for me. Because I had a very easy childbirth. <laughs> I think all, all the exercising I did with kids didn't hurt me any. After I had my little girl, Karen, then um, I quit teaching. And, and I quit teaching for five years because in the meantime I had another baby. We, just, we have two little girls, mm-hmm. big girls now. I stayed home for those five years. And then when the little one was about three and a half, then I found a friend. I had a very good friend who they just moved from a little house down in the Chicago area. And so she took care of my little girls. We made this arrangement. I paid her $8 a day while she took care of my little girls while I went to school and taught. It was a lot of running around because my job was uh, north of Chicago and she lived well, down in Chicago. So I had to deliver my kids to her, and then I'd go up north to teach, and then I'd go home and pick them up and then come home. And, I mean, there's a lot of running around. So she didn't live, like, in your neighborhood? Well, she used to live sort of in my neighborhood, but then she moved down to Chicago but, and had a bigger house. and It all worked out. You know, when you're young, you do things that I could never do that now. So- and all, all that time, I was passing the house of worship. My sister, Sarah Hatch, Sarah Lashman Hatch, became a Baha'i. I have twin sisters, and they're six years younger than me. So when, when Sarah was at the University of Illinois, she became a Baha'i. At the beginning, I didn't know what that house of worship was, but later on then, when Sarah became Baha'i, she begged me to go over to see the house of worship. 
And for 11 years, I did not want to know anything about the Baha'i faith. I thought it, it was really nice for her, but I didn't really care about knowing anything about it. Sarah married Richard Hatch, and they were living out in South Carolina at the time. They had met out there. And they came to Chicago to go to the convention. They were delegates at the convention. This is the National Convention. Yeah, the National Convention at Baha'i National Center. Yeah. Maybe, Jane, you could explain what the purpose of a delegate is at a Baha'i National Convention. Every year, the Baha'is in their whatever community they live in, or in the area, not just the community, then they elect delegates to go to Wilmette, to the national, um, what am I trying to say? Convention. They go to, and they uh, elect the National Spiritual Assembly. They come from all over the United States. They do this in other countries, too. Which, the National Spiritual Assembly being the National Governing Council for the Baha'is. And yes. And they're elected once a year. So your sister and her husband came by because... Because he they was were delegates. They came from yeah. South Carolina, and they spent um, maybe a, I don't know, maybe a week with us. It was our first time meeting Sarah's husband, Richard. You know, I was going to go to their wedding, but Paul had a factory in Chicago, and the factory had burned down. Somebody said fire to, <laughs> to mm. the factory, and so that happened just before their wedding. So Paul was in such a bad state. You know, he and his partner were just uh, dumbfounded that this had happened. And so I just, I didn't, I never got to meet Richard because of that, that fire. So this was like a year later, and they came. And so we were meeting Richard for the first time. And uh, Richard, all he could talk about was the Baha'i faith whenever we were together. Five years before this happened, Sarah had sent me the book, Baha'u'llah in the New Era, Sort of a Baha'i textbook explaining each yeah. of the ideas of the Baha'i faith. But you know, I didn't ever, I didn't ever read that book. That book sat on my shelf <laughs> for five years. Then they came to visit, and and to this day, I have not read that book. <laughs> oh, I've read little bits of it, mm. parts. But the book that I read that convinced me that Baha'u'llah is who he says he is is Thief in the Night. And why don't you explain that book? Well, that book takes the prophecies of the Bible. It talks to the Christian more than any other religion in that particular book. And it tells how Baha'u'llah has fulfilled the prophecies of the Bible. And many of the prophecies I wasn't even aware of. So after Richard presented me that with that book and tell, told me, Jane, I'm not going to talk to any more to you guys about the Baha'i faith until you've read this book. But if you do read it, you will realize that Baha'u'llah is the messenger of God for this day. So, Jane, let me ask you a couple of questions here. One is, you said that Richard was talking about the faith all the time when he was in town. What was your reaction to that? Well, my reaction was listening to Paul and Richard discuss it. Because Paul had his martini in one hand, and um, the Bible in the other. And Paul, just, he was just giving Richard a hard time. They were just arguing and arguing and arguing. I, I, I'm not sure what I was thinking. Mm -hmm. I was thinking that, well, 
I know Sarah's a Baha'i for, for all these years, and there must be something to it. But I really it took that book for me to realize that, yes, this is the truth. Now, you were given the first book, Baha'u'llah and the New Era, yeah. but you had no interest in reading it, and you didn't. What caused you to pick this book up and actually read it? Well, one thing Richard told me, I was listening a lot to Richard. Sarah didn't talk too much because her talking had been for 11 years and I didn't listen. So she let him do the talking. <laughs> so one day, well, while they were here, before he'd given me the book, he said, Jane, you are a Baha'i, but you just don't know it. Now, why do you think he said that? <laughs> Maybe he wanted to wake me up. I don't know. I mean, what was it that he thought made you a Baha'i? Oh, maybe it was the way I thought about things. He didn't say, mm-hmm. but he'd gotten to know me those few days that we were together. But when he said that to me, that made me think, well, if he thinks I'm a Baha'i and don't know it, what the heck is a Baha'i? What's about this Baha'i thing? You know, and then he said and handed me this book that he wasn't going to talk to me anymore. So before they left, Paul had already gone to work, and I was saying goodbye to them. As he walked out the door, that's what he told me. And so that's what made me want to read the book. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, he says I'm a Baha'i and don't know it, so maybe I'd better read this book and find out what, what made him say that. Well, anyway, I accepted the Baha'i faith, so I guess he said the right thing. <laughs> so was it right away after you read the book? Yeah, it took me two weeks to get through the book. I, w- I was reading every day. It was in the summer. I had lots of time. And I had the Bible in one hand and this book in the other. As I read the book, it kept referring to things in the Bible of prophecies. And so I wasn't aware of those prophecies, but I would go and find the prophecy and read it. And I really read it thoroughly. And every day when Paul came home from work, I would say, Paul, you know, you've got to read this book. I think they're not crazy after all. I think that this... Baha'u'llah is who he says he is. You've got to read the book, and you'll, you'll find it too. No, no, he didn't want to read the book. I think he told you this story. Yeah. <laughs> but then he finally did. I mean, I'm, I, I guess I, I don't remember asking him what... The way he explained it to me, I think, was you became a Baha'i after reading that book. It, was that enough for him to pick up the book and read it? Was the fact that it uh, changed your mind and... No, the reason he was looking for something to read in the airplane. So when we got to the airport, he said, oh, I wish I had something to read. And I said, Paul, take this book. And he grabbed it out of my hand. He said, oh, all right. <laughs> <laughs> and so then he started reading that book. And he read and read and read until he read the thing in one night. He's, he's very intelligent and he reads fast. I'm very slow. <laughs> so... So Paul says, you know something, why don't you call up those Baha'is? Sarah says they have these things called firesides. Which are? They call them firesides. You just invite people to come over and hear about the Baha'i faith. And, you know, sometimes you get one or two people, sometimes you get a crowd. So, okay, this is how it went. I called up the lady in Northbrook, and I, you know, asked her, uh, I'd like to come to your fireside. What do I do? When does it start and all this? 
So she told me uh, every Tuesday night we have this fireside and different people come and they give talks and uh, tell of different things about the Baha'i faith. You learn a lot. So I said, well, I'm going to come. I'm bringing my husband. So we made that arrangement. Every Tuesday night they do this. Well, that first Tuesday, Paul decided he was had a stomachache. And so I went by myself. Well, then the next Tuesday, I called the lady again. I want to come again. I'm sorry my husband didn't come last time, but he'll come this time. Well, the next time, Paul had another excuse. I don't know what was holding him back, but he loved his martinis. He was really into martinis. <laughs> the, be, the, the issue being that Baha'is don't drink. Yeah. So, uh, so he didn't go the next time. And that one was kind of a, a strange one. After I've gone to many thousands of firesides since, I realized that it wouldn't have appealed to him. So he wasn't meant to go to that one. But the next one, the third one, I I said, if he's not going this time, boy, he's going to get it. <laughs> well, he said he'd go, so he did go. And that was a, a very good fireside, and he, he, he made a good connection with, with the people. And Anyway, so from then on, then, we went... I think we went to seven firesides. And then he, he'd gone down to the temple, and we lived 20 minutes from the Baha'i Temple. And he brought home a huge big stack of books, and he just read, he devoured the wood, read, 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 as, as well as going to the firesides. So uh, then on the way to the, to the meeting, Paul said to me, Jane, I'm going to become a Baha'i tonight. I don't know about you. And and I was I believed it, but I didn't think I was you know perfect enough. I mean I didn't think I was ready. So I said to him, Paul, how can you be a Baha'i? You know Baha'is don't drink, and you know how you love your martinis and all your stuff. How are you going to do that? I think you better think on that for a while. Or you better quit drinking first or something. You know that was just our little silly conversation. Mm-hmm. So we went to the meeting. And at the end of the meeting, Paul got up and he went over to the lady and he asked her for a card and he signed up for the Baha'i Faith. And I thought to myself, well, my gosh, Jane, you dumbbell, go do it too. You know you believe it. <laughs> so we both, we became Baha'is that night and and our lives just turned around. <laughs> they have never been the same. Yeah, so what happened after you became a Baha'i? Well, then, then he uh, just quit drinking. Eventually, we ended up having these huge, wonderful firesides every third Sunday for about two and a half years. At well, your Paul house. Paul worked at a, he, he and his partner owned this plastic bag business, and a lot of Mexicans were uh, working there. And so Paul just started going around telling everybody, and we started this big thing where we had 80 and 90 people come every third Sunday. It was so wonderful. And myself, well, I started, you know, telling the teachers at school, and a few of them were a little annoyed because I was talking about something that they didn't understand. You know, I got sort of nervous. So that didn't go too well. But then we decided to go pioneering. Which is what, Jane? Well, pioneering is where you leave your home and you go someplace else in the world. It could either, it could be home front pioneering or it could be you could leave your 
country and go to some other country and usually go where where you're needed. We ended up going to the Bahamas. First we went to went down to the Grand uh, the Grand Turk Islands, which is islands down south of the Bahamas. Well, we took a two-week trip. We had we had some people stay with our girls. Our girls were like 12 and 14. First we started out at Turks and Caicos Islands. We were there for a week and then we went to Nassau, and then we went over to Andros Island. We were on our way to Andros, but we'd been to the Turks and Caicos, and we were, weren't sure where we should go. When we got to Andros Island, we thought about the possibility of maybe that's where we're going to end up, and then we did. We decided to go there. Now, the, the Andros Island is it's the biggest island in the Bahamas, and it has just small little settlements around the island. We met people at Nichols Town, and that's where we ended up settling down. That was a very different life from what, for our girls especially. But our girls grew up in sort of in the city life. I mean, it was outside Chicago, but it was not as big. So what was your daughter's reactions to you going pioneering? Well, we had this little dog, Sherlock, and they said, well, as long as we can take Sherlock with us, we'd like to go. So that we didn't have any problems, not at all. They they had good friends, but I think they liked adventure. It was a great adventure for all of us being on that island. But I think it was it was harder for them to adjust. I loved it. it I thought it was just I was living in paradise. And of course, I took up scuba diving, and Paul did his fishing. And after about six months, they started to really love it. Mm-hmm. But at the beginning, it was quite an adjustment for them. What was difficult for them? It was such a different life. You go into the stores and, well, there aren't any stores, really. They just have little teeny-weeny kioscos kind of thing. It was difficult for one reason, because we were the only white people on the island. It was just a little getting used to. They didn't like being an well, audit. Everybody was staring at Right, exactly. You know? Yeah, right, like exactly. They'd come home from school sometimes and they'd say, oh, Mom, they were just looking at us all day. They were just, <laughs> we're different than they are. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, but after a while, you know, we were there on this island for a year and a half. And after the first six months was over, then it seemed like that they just fit in and everybody loved them. They loved everybody else. You know, it was a good experience. And many times our girls who are now 44 and 46, but when they were um, going through their older teen years and their 20s and so on, they both would write us and tell us that, that was the best experience that they could ever have had. It was better than, and the, the school wasn't really that good on Andros because uh, it was like they copied all day. You know, the teachers would come in. They didn't have books. The only books that they did have, they did, yeah, they did have the Bahamian history and the Bible. Those two, those were the only textbooks those kids had. So, that was frustrating to them because they'd go to school and the teachers would come in and just write on the blackboard and they would copy, write, copy, write, copy. So that was boring. So then they begged us to let them do a correspondence. So we signed them up for correspondence. But then Susan, our younger one, I was her uh, full-time tutor. She was doing sixth grade. Karen was doing doing high school. So her high school, 
she was sitting on her bed every day in, in her little bedroom and studying by herself. I didn't realize that she was going really, really slow. And Sue, I was just pushing her along. When the year was over, she had finished hers, but Karen had only done six months of hers, of her high school. But then we moved over to Nassau and rolled them in a, a private school, Queens College. And Susan never did have seventh and eighth grade. She went right in as a freshman, and Karen went in as a junior. But it didn't seem to matter. I worried and worried, thinking, you know, what kind of an education are these kids going to get? You know, Sue never went through seventh and eighth grade. But it didn't matter. They just, they're, they're both doing great. <laughs> so I worried for nothing. And then after Nassau, where did you go? After we've been there uh, two and a half years, we started getting mail from Panama asking us to be the caretakers of the Panama Temple. A couple who we first met when, when we came to Nassau, her husband was doing something where he was transferred to Panama. And then the wife, Rosemary, she came back for a visit when we, Paul and I, had just gone to to the immigration to renew our visa, and we were six days late for some reason. I guess we forgot or something. And so they told us, we, well, you've been here long enough, you, you have to leave. <laughs> so we went to the Baha'i Center to tell them, you know, what they told us, we, we've got to leave the country. We, we were late and, you know, we told our story. So Rosemary happened to be visiting from Panama and she says, I know exactly what you should do. They want somebody to be caretakers of the house of worship in Panama. When I go back, I'm going to tell them about you guys. I was thinking to myself, I think that house of worship is way up on top of the mountain. I don't speak Spanish. And, you know, I had all kinds of reasons why I didn't think I would be good to go there. Paul thought that would be great, but I didn't. Well, first of all, after we got told we had to leave. We went home and stayed with my mother for about four months. And then while we were there, then's when we started getting letters from Panama. So Paul decided that he would take a trip through the Caribbean and stop off in Panama and just see what's happening and see if, if he thought we would fit in there. Sue and I, the second daughter and I, were at home with mother. Karen, she had graduated. She graduated from the school in, in the Bahamas. So she was thinking of going to uh, Georgia because Georgia is near Bahamas, and she was going to uh, get a year of uh, residency there and go to the school in Georgia. This was before she knew that we had to leave the Bahamas. He, he goes to Nassau, and then he goes on down to uh, the Caribbean, to um, St. Thomas, and then on, on over to Panama. And in his mind, he thinks we could fit in the best in Panama. But, of course, we had to make that family discussion. You know, you don't just make up your mind and then do it without the family agreeing. Paul calls us from Nassau and says, I'm here at the house where we lived, and I want you all to get on a plane and come down here. So Karen comes from Georgia, and Sue and I come from Brushville, and we meet down there, and then talk it over and discuss it, and we all decide, okay, we'll go on to Panama. And, and Susan went with us to Panama. 
but Sue had another year, and so she went with us to Panama. And we try, I tried to get her into the schools in in the city, you know, the city high schools to finish her education. Nobody would take her, and you know why? Because she didn't speak Spanish. No, because she hadn't had French. What? I thought that's the weirdest thing. So Jane, how was she going to go to school if she didn't know the Spanish in the well, in the first place? She didn't get in the school. Yeah. But but I ended up getting getting her into um, the DOD school system. You know, it was on the Panama zone, the Panama Canal area school. If I had not gotten a job there, we would have had to pay like four thousand dollars for her to finish her last year of school. But because I got a job, and I got this job three days before school started, Sue was able to go to school for nothing, and I was able to teach a year of art down there. So this was a U.S. facility that you were teaching yeah. and she was going to Department school? Department of Defense. So, and everything was in English. You know, so, so that's the way that worked out. During all this, Susan had fallen in love with Ricardo, who's a Bahamian, while we were still in the Bahamas. Ricardo wanted to be a Baha'i. He, he was coming to our um, things that we had in the Baha'i Center there. And we'd come to our firesides and things. And he was believing it. But his parents made such a fuss. And they said, if you join that religion, we're, we're cutting you off from your education. But it, he ended up going to Canada to school. A lot of uh, Bahamians go to Canada to school. But he came down twice from Montreal. He came to Panama to visit Susan. And he's four years older than her. We thought that she was too young. But then they got married when she was 18 and a half. Now they've been married for 28 or some years. And they're happily married. So how, how long were you in Panama? We were there uh, 15 years. We, we got there in January of 81, and then we left... 95. And why did you guys leave Panama? You know, when you've been in a place for 15 years and you had that big, big responsibility, it wasn't just that we were living in a house, you know. I mean, it was a big responsibility. And Paul was beginning to feel like that it was his temple, and he didn't like that. You know, I mean, it wasn't his temple. <laughs> but uh, feeling like it was time for us to do something before we completely retired. Although, you know, I knew that we would miss it. I, well, I think of it every day. I loved it there. I'm soon going to be 75 and be 76. And, you know, when you get so old, you don't need to have that responsibility. So that was why. But it was a wonderful 15 years. Great people. We did a lot of wonderful things with, with the Indians, for one thing. There were three groups of Indians. We did most with the Guaymese that live up in the mountains. Then there's a group of Indians. The Chocois, they live in bamboo huts on uh, stilts, you know, uh, elevated. They live along the river, and we we did quite a few things with them. And then there's the Kune Indians that live on islands off the coast of Panama. And I had a great adventure with them. I went on a 10-day trip sailing, you know, from island to island and sleeping in their homes. And we went to 20 different islands. 
was... At one point, we had an Indian girl live with us for two and a half years who was up with the Guaymi Indians uh, when Paul was helping. He was constructing a, a big uh, educational center for them. They, they called it the Guaymi Culture Center. And during that time, he was gone from the temple for 10 months on that project, and I stayed back at the temple taking care of things. But I said to myself, I'm going to go once in a while to visit up there because it's too long, <laughs> too far away. I would, maybe once every six weeks or so, I would go and spend a couple of weeks. And then, so I met this Indian girl who was the the daughter of the lady who cooked for all the workers. And um, she was ready to go to high school. So um, her mother asked me one day if, I would be willing to take her back with me and let her live with us and go to school, go to high school in, in the city. So I talked to Paul, and we both decided, yes, that'd be great. So she did. She stayed with us. She was 13 when she moved in with us, and then she was 15 and a half when she left us. Now she's 35, and we, we still write to each other on the Internet. We send pictures back and forth. She, she grew up with the Indians uh, up in the boonies, in the mountains. Most of the women, Guaymi Indian ladies, are more quiet, more subdued. But this girl, <laughs> she was just the opposite. She was just a lively person, and everybody loved being around her. And uh, she was fun to have. And a lot, a lot of the things that I did in Panama while I was there, I mean... I was in the choir, and the last five years that, that we lived there, well, the director had left because he got married and started having children, and he didn't have time to direct anymore. And so I've got people to sing with me periodically. Most of the time, really, the last five years, I was the soloist. The acoustics was wonderful. So I would sing. Uh, sometimes... Singers would visit, you know, from different places, and then I would get them to sing with me. We would go to other areas in Panama, and we would work with the communities, work with the people who are Baha'is, other people who were not Baha'is. At the beginning, my Spanish was not that good, but the people loved it when I came. I think it was just, you know, I was a foreigner, and I could tell that they really loved having me there even though my Spanish was bad. But after 15 years, I, I was speaking pretty good Spanish. I could get on a bus from Panama and take an eight-hour ride across the country up to the north all by myself and meet other people on the bus and carry a conversation. I'm so proud of myself. <laughs> and also, in 1985, my mother and, and uh, daughter were visiting at that time, and we went to a lot of art galleries. And there was a, an artist there who did beautiful watercolor paintings of the city life and the country life of Panama. So my mother said to me, Jane, you should be doing this very same thing. You could do that. And see, if she hadn't have said that, I probably wouldn't. I'm a painter. I'm a watercolor artist, and I sell my work. Um, I just enjoy doing that a whole lot. I, now that I'm in Bloomington, 
I do university scenes and flower scenes. And Jane, had you let your art lapse? Before I went to Panama, it was as an art teacher. For 10 years, I was an art teacher in elementary school. After I left the States and we went to the Bahamas, well, then I got into scuba diving. And I was doing everything else except doing art. Oh, a couple of times I tried to paint something, but I really wasn't into it. But in, in 1985, see, we, we moved to Panama in 81. And 85 is when I started painting Panamanian scenes. I would go around the city and the country and just take lots of pictures that, that would inspire me in, in uh, the lighting. And, and that's when I started painting, and I haven't quit. I'm still painting. So your, your mother was very influential in reinstituting painting in your life? Yeah, I guess she was. I don't know if I would be painting now if she hadn't have said that. My well, mother and I had a very good rapport. What do you think it was that made that click for you when she said that? I mean, When she said, well, and then I thought, there are a lot of interesting scenes around here. I mean, I had to sort of learn to do it, and there's a lot of artists who, if they don't make a lot of money, they write books, you know, and illustrate, and they give you ideas of techniques of things that you can do, how to paint trees and how to do this and that. So I, I studied up on that, and I practiced a lot, and then I started painting scenes, Panamanian scenes. And, and one of our Baha'i um, friends who uh, lived in the northern part of Panama, she had a beauty salon, this lady, and uh, she saw my paintings hanging on my wall one day, and she said, Jane, you know, I think I could sell your paintings in my salon. So I said, well, you can try it. So she took two or three of my paintings back, and and right away she sold them. I made quite a bit of money. So uh, then I started putting them in galleries down there in Panama, and also uh, there was one bank that had a juried art show. And several times I put my paintings in the juried art show, and I would win. So then I thought to myself, well, maybe I'm good. Maybe I do know what I'm doing. So um, that got me started. And so when I came here to, to Bloomington, Indiana, it uh, has a university in it. I thought, well, now I'm here. What do I paint? I walked around the university, and it was it's a beautiful, really beautiful university. And beautiful fall trees and the light shining through the trees. And you see the buildings in the background and people doing things. So that's what I started to paint. I'm well known for my uh, university scenes, and so and I've made them into prints and in the cards, and people buy them, so that that helps. Oh, that's great. Well, Jane, thank you so much for telling your story. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Jane Jensen, a school teacher who lived a completely different life after becoming a Baha'i, including living abroad and becoming a painter. For a copy of this and other programs, you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org, where you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
broken wing bird And my fight is very slow Remove the veils from my eyes So I can see the way And fly yeah, yeah. home How many wander on the path of delusion? Confusion is a fact that'll mask the reunion of men, when will it be? See how desperately we need unity, but who am I to unify nations and peoples, domes and the steeples? We can be equal, if only we care. So I put my hands in the air, cause this is my air, this is my prayer, this is what I breathe in, this is what I believe. I wanna guide the wayward, lead the hapless, awaken the heedless, and free the captives. My air, this is my prayer, this is what I breathe the sky no fear no pain with my hands held high cause this is my air this is my prayer this is what i breathe in this is what i believe i want to guide the wayward lead the hapless awaken the heedless and free the captives my air this is my prayer this is what i breathe in this is what i believe i want to guide the wayward lead the hapless awaken the heedless and free the captives yeah give me Give me wings So I So I can soar So I can soar And get closer to you Yeah Give me Give me wings So I I can soar
WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.